My name is Dr. Howard Lyon, Senior Chair of the History Department at New Haven College. I'm also the best-selling biographer of Thomas Edison, Cheat to Win, and Nikola Tesla, History's Loser. Due to circumstances beyond my control, I found myself with a lot of free time on my hands. I decided to turn my biographical powers to the fictional Cheersverse and write the definitive life story of Fraser Crane using only the data provided by Cheers, Wings, and 11 seasons of his titular sitcom. In our last episode, we covered the history of the Crane family, from the days of the Russian Revolution in 1917 to the birth of Fraser Crane in 1953. And now let us return to the story of this esteemed psychiatrist. On a spring day in 1953, Marty Crane was stuck in a waiting room filled with cigarettes and Life magazines. Suspected Pinko ousted from crossing guard post, read the headline of the day's newspaper, and it was confirmed further down on the page that Queen Elizabeth just had a child. And on that same day the world welcomed a new royal, Marty and Hester welcomed a new crane. He was Fraser, lovingly named after a rat. Now I'd like to continue and talk about little baby Fraser, but first, two things. One, here we are again, making up fake royalty to establish an AU, aka alternate universe. I mentioned earlier that it would happen again, and it did. Don't doubt me. Hmm? My ex-wife doubted me, but I took bold action, and I'm not ashamed. In fact, I'm, I'm proud of what I did. I wish I could say more, but my lawyer said not to. And two, we have been given yet another ridiculous set of contradictory evidence. Over the course of Fraser, our man is given two different birth years. Very, very poor planning by the writers. How could they? This is the main character we're talking about. In the late Dr. Crane, Season 7, Episode 8, we're told that Fraser was born in 1952. But in The Impossible Dream, Season 4, Episode 3, we're told Fraser was born in 1953. I will come back to why I chose 1953 later on in this episode. Trust me, though. I made the right call. I always do. From the first moment Marty saw Fraser, he was proud of him. And despite his wife's inheritance, Marty made sure to put in long hours on the job to buy his new kid the finer things in life. But even with an infant at home... Marty was having problems balancing his work and home life, which happens a lot with men who serve. It happened uh, to me. Um, my father, you know, he, he was in the Navy. Marty would even use Baby Fraser's blanket to clean his service revolver, a behavior that succinctly displayed the messy blur between policeman and a dad. My father never cleaned anything. He said it was beneath his station, so things uh, piled up. Ugh. 
the smells. Now, from an early age, young Fraser was a sensitive boy. Hester, with her PhD in psychology, must have recognized this and often engaged with the inner recesses of her son's psyche. Fraser adored his mother. He was absolutely a mama's boy. He took after her at an early age. He was born with a brain, an IQ of 129. He was also littered with health problems, like an allergy to cats and dust. He also had an unfortunate skin condition on his derriere, known as pityriasis rosea, which would affect him the rest of his life. I was born with blonde hair. My father was so happy, and then it turned around, and then he wasn't happy ever again. Life for Marty and Hester was as quaint and happy as it could be, considering they had a toddler to care for. The relationship between the new parents was as strong as ever. They regularly made love, and to drown out the noise of their coitus, they would play Broadway cast albums. This instilled in Fraser a love for the theater, as well as, let's just say, an unhealthy association with the music. There were sometimes disagreements between the two. Marty, for one, was putting in a lot of hours at the precinct, often spending more time with his co-workers than his own wife. Oh, and they would argue. There was a memorable fight in 1956, one where Hester became dreadfully upset with her husband. To make up for it, Marty bought her flowers and made her a romantic dinner. This apology worked. And this romantic reconciliation came with a surprise ending. That night, Hester became pregnant with a second child. And so, in 1957, Marty again found himself in that stuffy waiting room filled with cigarettes and Life magazines. We'll meet Niles in a moment, but I want to circle back on a promise I made earlier. I don't renege on a promise. I told you there was a reason I chose 1953 as Fraser's birth year. The wait is over. The reason is Niles. You see, in the season three episode, The Friend, we find out that Niles was born in 1957. Based on the brother's relationship, I always imagined there was only a year or two between them. If Fraser was born in 1952, there would be a five-year difference between these brothers. I wanted to close that window as far as the evidence would allow me. So here we are. There is now a four-year difference between them. Hmm. Didn't I tell you? I know what I'm doing here. Okay? This is why I won the prestigious Wisconsin Editor's Pick of the Month Award in May 1980, which was a big deal because Michael Crichton's Congo came out that month, and people forget how big a deal that was. That book was everywhere. <clears throat> and so back to that stuffy waiting room. This time, Marty had his four-year-old son by his side. Soon, all were introduced to Niles Crane, Marty and Hester's youngest son. The very first thing Fraser said when he met Niles was, I don't like him. The arrival of a little brother signified a change in Fraser's life. 
he was never good at making friends, even as a youngster. And so he filled that void with his parents, particularly his mother. With a newborn in the picture, he no longer had the undivided attention of the woman he relied on. From the very first time they met, the two Crane boys were destined to be rivals. Not surprisingly, the very first thing Niles and Fraser were competitive about was Hester. Fraser didn't appreciate this infant taking her away from him. As Niles got older, it became clear that he was extremely similar to his brother. He too was brainy, with an IQ of 156. He too was plagued with medical afflictions. Niles was allergic to cats, cumin, scallops, nutmeg, opran, wheat germ, carob, and parchment mites. And he also gravitated more towards Hester than Marty, so the two boys were always jockeying for her time and attention. I myself am an only child. Uh, I did have a dog for some time, and my father, oh, he, he loved that dog. Uh, I was a Rottweiler. Uh, Lucky. He told Lucky he loved him every day. He never. Um. This sibling rivalry could get quite contentious, even at an early age. Since he was familiar with the workings of the human mind, Fraser was able to concoct awful pranks targeted at Niles. He once convinced him that the whole family were figments of his imagination, that the whole world was just in his mind. For months, Niles would dart into rooms just to make sure everyone was still there. This cruelty showcased a trait for psychopathy in Fraser, not adequately explored by the narrative of the series at all. But Niles could give as good as he got. When Fraser was ten, he forged letters from Leonard Bernstein and told everyone that they were pen pals. Niles was able to unmask this pathetic charade after quote-unquote Leonard Bernstein said that his Broadway debut was Candide, when it was actually on the town. The jig was up for the fibbing Fraser. As children, Fraser and Niles continued to grow into little versions of Hester. They wore suits. They learned Shakespeare. And it was easy for them to take after their mother. Marty, after all, was busy with work, spending his days on the beat and his nights at Duke's, a bar where he and his fellow policemen would unwind. Marty would miss so many birthdays. My father, you know, he was in the Navy, so same thing uh, there as well. And even when Marty did try to bond with his sons, it would often backfire. He encouraged them to play ball with the neighborhood kids, but the children only wanted to play with Marty. Fraser joined the Cub Scouts, but quit after just one hike. And when Marty tried to teach his sons how to ride bikes, the two unathletic children wound up in the hospital so many times that social services started asking questions. But there was one pivotal moment when Marty got through to his oldest son. When Fraser was very young, he found Marty's badge as his father was dressing for work. He started playing with it, 
and Marty sat him down and told him it wasn't a toy. It was a symbol of integrity and honesty and helping people. That really got to Fraser, and from that moment on, whenever Marty put on that badge, Fraser would think about their discussion. Throughout his life, whenever he had a difficult decision, he would think of his father and that badge. My father uh, never gave anything to me. One time, I asked him for a pocket knife, and he laughed so much. I didn't know what was funny, but he kept laughing, and and then I started laughing. <laughs> I laughed. I laughed and laughed, even though I hurt. Yes, Hester taught Fraser and Niles about psychology and music, culture and science. But despite their suits and their monogrammed train cases, their moral compass was taken right from their father. As they got older, the contentious nature of the Crane brothers was unrelenting. When Niles received a telescope, Fraser demanded one as well. When Fraser got a lute, his brother demanded one for himself. Marty ended up buying them two Balinese lutes, two decoupage kits, two pairs of lederhosen. When Niles discovered a love for fencing and backgammon, Fraser started to participate in those activities as well. In their play fort, they would make up fancy rules and titles for themselves, and things would escalate into full-blown fights. This seems like an appropriate time to say, I know what I'm doing here, okay? I understand that these are all jokes from a sitcom, all right? I know the idea of getting little children decoupage kits is supposed to be humorous. If I came upon a story like this in my research for, say, Stanley Kubrick, I'd bet the farm it was apocryphal. I know what I'm doing. Hmm? I'm treating the show as canon. It's not weird. I have a lot of free time before my trial and thought this would be fun. It is fun. It's fun. But despite it all, there was a great friendship between the brothers. They would sit on their mother's Davenport in their tweeds and tams, listening to the Texaco Symphonic Hour together. They co-authored a series of stories called The Crane Boys Mysteries. Yes, there would be fights and arguments, but Niles was Fraser's only real friend. 1961 was a big year for the young family. They moved into a lovely home on Wallace Lane. Fraser turned eight and had a terrible birthday. First, his father refused to take him to see West Side Story. Then, at his birthday party, he accidentally pinned the tail, not on the donkey, but on a girl named Sally. She was so mad she shoved a cupcake down his shorts. It was an inauspicious start to one of the most pivotal years of Fraser's life. The first important moment was one that happens to every child eventually. Fraser realized that his father, someone he looked up to, someone he saw as all powerful, was not perfect. <clears throat> the US Navy said my father was perfect, a perfect sailor, a perfect officer. If they were wrong about that, what else were they wrong about? What else? 
Marty took Fraser and some of the other boys from the math club out for pizza. And when the check came, Marty could not calculate the tip in his head. Seeing his father struggle with this made Fraser see the man in a different light. From that moment on, their relationship would be more complicated, more human, and often more contentious. But the second and more important thing happened later that year. Fraser had long been the target of bullies. He was teased, pantsed, and often the recipient of toilet swirlies. And one day, one very special day, a bully threw Fraser's copy of The Fountainhead under a bus. He came home crying. Hester explained that the bully did not do this because he didn't like Fraser, but because he didn't like himself. And at that moment, Fraser knew he wanted to be a psychiatrist. From that moment, he knew he wanted to become a student of human behavior. And in that moment, he felt a sense of purpose in his life that he would see through for the rest of his years. I had that moment in my life as well, a moment when I knew I wanted to be an historian. I was 20 and in a New Jersey drunk tank, and I realized it was so much nicer looking into the past because the future was ever so bleak. Uh, that's as good a place as any uh, to end this second episode. Thank you for joining me. I look forward to exploring the rich world of the Crane family further with you. In our next episode, we will touch on the life of Fraser Crane, student, high school, college, and all of the thrilling and sexual adventures that come along with that. I'd say get ready, but that would be inadequate for the episode I have prepared for you. Don't get ready. Stay ready. This is Dr. Howard Lyon, and that's a wrap on this episode of The Fraser Files. Thank you for listening to The Fraser Files. The Fraser Files was researched, written, and performed by Stephen Winchell and developed for audio by Stephen Winchell and Ian Abramson. Directed by Lara Unterstall with audio recording and production by Adam Goron. Music by Stephen Winchell and Takuya Yoshida. If you enjoyed our program, please rate and review us on your podcatcher of choice. You can find us on social media, at Fraser Files, on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, TikTok, and Blue Sky. You can also send us an email at FraserFilesPod at gmail.com. Thank you again for exploring the rich world of Fraser Crane with us.